on psychopathology, mental illness, and this theme will run through the remainder of the six weeks of your course. So you'll be seeing me a number of times to talk about a lot of different psychiatric conditions. And part of the discussion that we'll have in the next six weeks is talking about learning theory, which you think, oh, boring, operant, classical conditioning, ugh. The relevance is that it helps us understand how we might have learned some undesirable behaviors. And if we understand how we learn undesirable behaviors, we have a way of unlearning them. So we will focus on learning theory as it's relevant to some of the behaviors that manifest in mental illness. And then we'll talk about psychological testing as a means of gathering information about you so that we can actually diagnose you. So it's not just interviewing, but we have official tests that might help us find out more about what you're thinking and feeling, so it'll help us label you correctly. Now, since we're going to be spending a lot of time together, I thought I would introduce myself a little bit more thoroughly and maybe have some humorous slides. I did my degree in Western Canada, and that is where I met and married Duncan. Now, I know you don't recognize him or I. We had a lot more hair then. <laughs> Whoopsie. Now, this photo was taken one year ago on our 25th wedding anniversary. So, <laughs> and what you notice is as we age, we still look the same, <laughs> whatever. All right. It was in Victoria we learned to dive and discovered our passion for underwater photography. So for several decades now, we have photographed some very interesting creatures under the sea. And it was our love of diving that said, or at least helped us make the decision to leave North America and move to the, the Caribbean. And we'd moved 20 years ago. We didn't start off on Grenada. We started off in the Northern Caribbean, and we taught at medical schools on these very small Dutch islands. Now it was on St. Eustatius that we started our family. Now, they are cute when they're small. They're not as cute when they grow up. And this was very relevant to our coming here because they, they lived and they kept living to the point where when we decided to move to Grenada, how do we get our family here? American Airlines, Liot not taking the goats. So we had to come up with a way of one, getting them here, and two, convincing them to go into a crate. Now, that's where learning theory comes into play classical conditioning, operant conditioning. Finally, it was benzodiazepines that helped us get them into <laughs> the crate so we could get them in a plane. And it took two trips on a plane to get them and pay our duty and customs to get them here. Now, our, our claim to fame now is that since we moved here, we got a, a girl. And the, it was a mistake because out came, you think bunnies are prolific. Well, goats are prolific too. So ultimately, we have, oh, and then we couldn't help ourselves and took on adoptee. So we have quite the goat ranch right now. Then we decided, okay, time to get real children. Okay, so then <laughs> we kind of had the same, same problem. So in any event, that is the, the legacy of the Kirkby's is bringing a whole lot of goats and dogs into the world. What I want to do today, moving on to serious matter, I want to start talking about mental illness in general, 
the classification system that we use to diagnose. And then the second part of today, we're going to talk about depressive disorders and specifically uh, major depression. Okay. So as we embark on this discussion of, of mental illness, we probably need to have a working definition of what is mental illness. And what will maybe surprise you is that it's a very generous, very liberal definition of what it takes to have a mental illness. Do you have thoughts that are problem-some? Do you have urges that are problematic? Do you have impulses? Do you have emotions that get in the way of your personal functioning, maybe your schooling, your work? And if you say yes, then you might have a mental disorder. And what you'll find is that given the classification system that we use, there are hundreds and hundreds of disorders. And likely, as we go through the next few weeks, you're going to notice that you have some, maybe one, maybe two, maybe multiple, maybe little bits and pieces. But you'll find that it's not so difficult, actually, to, be to meet criteria for a mental illness. And just as an example, if you have had difficulties falling asleep or sustaining sleep for over a month, you actually have a mental disorder called insomnia. It's probably not the worst thing to admit you have, but it actually is classified as a mental disorder. So that gives you an idea of how generous the definition is. I have a mental disorder because I have problems falling asleep. Yeah, it's a problematic behavior that could very well be interrupting and disruptive to your life. Now, as we talk about diagnosing for the rest of the semester, just want to caution you that there is still a lot of bias and discrimination against people that have labels. Now, maybe if you have insomnia, you're not going to be discriminated against, but if you have schizophrenia or bipolar or some of these other disorders very well, people may be looking at you differently, treating you differently, not wanting to hire you, not wanting to have you be their residence in, uh, in, in residency programs. So just keep in mind, there still is this negative view of someone who has a problem controlling their mind. If you had problems controlling your blood pressure, not so big of a deal, or your cholesterol or your blood sugar levels. But all of a sudden when it's talking about mental functioning, all of a sudden you're to blame, you're less worthy. There's this, still this stereotype that it's your fault and there's something sort of unfavorable about you. So just be cautious that that's still unfortunately a view. If you give a wrong diagnosis psychiatrically, you still have the same type of problems you would if you missed a medical diagnosis. And that is you could be putting them on the wrong meds and even if you're not giving them the wrong treatment in that respect, as an example, say that someone gets misdiagnosed as having an intellectual impairment. And this happened with one of the, the children I saw where they were told, they were assessed with an IQ test and you, you are intellectually impaired. And as a consequence, special classrooms and special instructions and education, she did not have impaired intelligence. She had an anxiety disorder that kept her from putting her full efforts into the intelligence test. And so consequences can be notable even if you miss a psychiatric diagnosis. And what you find is once you have that label, however incorrect that label might be, psychologists, mental health professionals like to continue to propagate that diagnosis. So when they're writing their report, they'll say, oh, prior history of mental, you know, some sort of mental impairment. No, that was a wrong diagnosis, but they still put it forward. And you'll hear people, oh, I was diagnosed with attention deficit. Oh, no, I was bipolar. Oh, no, it was borderline. And then someone was wrong somewhere along the way, and yet you see this history that says they have it all. So just be cautious that the label tends to stick with you 
even if it's erroneous. Also, a problem with diagnosing is that you tend to think that, well, if I have seen a depressed person, I've seen them all. I've seen a schizophrenic, I've seen them all. I've seen a borderline patient, I've seen them all. And you almost feel like, I don't need to see you, this is just what you do, here's the treatment. And you have to remember that there are unique differences with patients and don't try to diagnose and treat without seeing the patient. Take into consideration uniqueness of that particular person. But it's too easy to say, oh, they're depressed, do this. Versus you need to know a little bit more about their values, their lifestyle, their, their circumstances. Also keep in mind that mental health professionals like to analyze behavior and read into your comments and your nonverbal expressions. We want to pathologize. We're looking for something wrong with you. And sometimes we look at behaviors and we, we do think, ah, that's an indicator that you're lying, that you're depressed. Or, you know, maybe it's just respectful and that's why they can't look you in the eye. Maybe when someone's late, it's not because they're being passive aggressive and giving you this message that they're, they don't like you, but they won't say it, but they're going to express it in this passive form. Maybe that's in their culture. Being on time is actually rude. So take into account that. Some, how about some people who they're kind of in your space, you're sitting next to them and you've been told there's a certain ideal distance for interviewing and they're like really close. They're a close talker type of person. And you think, geez, are you hypomanic, disinhibited? What's wrong with your frontal lobe? And maybe in their culture, that is this, the interpersonal distance that's comfortable. So again, just be cautious if you're dealing with people from another culture that it, you can't pathologize everything that you see. Some people who are paranoid and are suspicious, that might be absolutely normal and acceptable given where they, they came from. And they, you should be suspicious. Another thing about diagnosing is that you should try to be, I guess what's the word, stingy, parsimonious. Try to give the fewest labels to capture the person. You don't want to look at each separate symptom and diagnose something separately. Is there one diagnosis that can capture all the symptoms? That would be the ideal. And just as you don't know these diagnoses, well, what would you do with someone who's depressed, who's got sleep problems and loss of sexual interest? Now, if you only had one of those symptoms, like if you only had the sleep problems, then you probably would just say insomnia. If you only had problems with sexual arousal, loss, loss of sexual interest, then you'd probably do the FSIAD diagnosis. Can depression, being depressed, account for sleep difficulties? Definitely, you'll hear that next hour. Can it account for loss of interest in things, especially sex? Yes. Depression captures it all. You don't need to try to give a separate diagnosis for each symptom. So the best way to capture this would be one diagnosis, depression. Our classification system that we use, the DSM, this is widely used in North America. It's not the predominant one in the rest of the world, but it's what North America uses. That's what step one is going to test you on. So I heavily focus on DSM. This is a, an encyclopedia in a way, it's a, 
it's a, a, a book that allows us to go through in a checklist fashion. Do you have the symptoms that define a particular disorder? Now, the fifth edition came out in 2013. Up until that point, we had been functioning and using DSM-4. For 20 years, just about, we were using the fourth edition. There was, in that 20-year period, a intermediate fourth edition called the TR, DSM-4-TR. It was not a major revamping of diagnosis. It was slight text changes to some descriptions, but it did not change the actual diagnoses, the names, the criteria. So it was not a substantive major overhaul at all. So what this means is that for 20 years, people were speaking the language of DSM-4. When you do your psych rotation in clinicals, chances are you're going to have preceptors that know DSM-4-TR back and forth, and they will be still very resistant and probably denigrating DSM-5 because it's, it's a new language. It's hard to get used to. They've eliminated some disorders, changed names, changed criteria. So you'll still hear a lot about the DSM-4. DSM-5 is what we are going to be working with. So the major feature of DSM is that it does provide that checklist approach. And just to give you an example, we will cover IED later this term. And to give you a flavor for how the checklist approach works is there is a lot of different criteria that are specified that must be met. And some commonalities, just as themes, one is that to diagnose, it's usually not just that you have a particular behavior or thought or, or impulse, it's that you have it enough times. So there is a oftentimes a frequency criteria, not that just you're, you have outbursts and tantrums, but you do so on average X amount of times. And then typically there is a duration requirement. So not that you just did it 10 times in one week, but it's persisted. So oftentimes there is a frequency and or a duration requirement to meet criteria for a specific disorder. So that is a common theme. The emphasis always is that if you have these symptoms, if it's not causing you impairment, if it's not distressful, if it's not getting in the way of your life, we're probably not going to call you dis disordered. Well, you might, we might say you're depressive-ish or OCD-ish, but we're not going to actually label you if it's not really compromising your function. So it's an emphasis on every diagnosis is that it's got to be sig clinically significant. Another commonality is that for the diagnoses is that you might be hallucinating, you might be delusional, you might de be depressed, but is it due to the fact you're using drugs, withdrawing from a, a drug? Is it due to a, a head injury? Is it due to some other explanation? And if it's due to some other explanation, we're not going to diagnose it. So there's this, always this exclusionary criterion that has to be met. Make sure that we can't better explain it with another etiology. Note that there is another diagnostic system, and it, the ICD, the International Classification of Diseases, is the one most of the world uses. And the ICD is a manual that covers all diseases, not just psychiatric, but medical as well. They have a, they have a section that focuses on mental illness. The ICD and the DSM were developed in collaboration, so there's a lot of overlap, not perfect. And DSM steals the codes that are associated with each disorder. They don't generate their own random code to say, here's an anonymous way of conveying to insurance companies what, what disorder you have. We're just going to submit a code. So DSM borrows the codes from the ICD. And you'll get used to it in clinicals when you 
fill out paperwork. You'll likely have to look up most codes, but if you d diagnose depression a lot, you're going to start memorizing these. Now, because ICD-9 was out and ICT-10 was in formulation, DSM-5 actually double codes. They said, well, we're going to use ICD-9 because that was what was in, in effect at the time, but we knew that ICD-10 codes were coming out. So you'll see the double numbers, which just is referring to different versions of the ICD. Hundreds of disorders, and as you saw even from the... IED diagnosis is pretty elaborate what the definition is. Let me show you just for an example of how it's changed over the years. The second edition of DSM defined manic depression, which is called bipolar now. Manic depression is basically saying you have manic episodes and then they describe a little bit about what mania is. Elation, flight of ideas, accelerated speech. Okay, how long? How many of those symptoms do you need? They don't tell you. So it was more vague, like, yeah, you kind of have that. Yeah, you're bipolar, or you're at this time manic depressed. Currently, same disorder, except called different. We call it bipolar one. Uh, you have a manic episode, and now look how elaborate the information is. It says how long, how many symptoms. These are the precise symptoms. So the reliability of diagnosis is much improved. DSM-2 I'm not sure everyone would give a person the same diagnosis. Some would say, well, you only have two. On the other one, I only have three. No one knows. Using this more elaborate framework, much more easy to get replicability, reliability, because it's much better defined. So one thing about DSM diagnoses, rely, uh, they're reliable in the sense they're replicable. You come to me, I do the checklist, I'll give you a diagnosis. You go to Duncan, hopefully if he uses the same checklist, he's going to give you the same diagnosis. Now note that for some disorders, there are variant criteria for children. Now we don't get into this in this course, but just so you know that sometimes you'll look at the criteria and say, oh, if this child is under a certain age, don't look at that, look at this criteria. And just as an example for post-traumatic stress that we'll talk about later, is that one of the symptoms for post-traumatic stress is that you have to be hyper-aroused, hyper-reactive in some way. And for adults, they would list, or children over six, they would say, what are examples of being hyper-aroused or hyper-alert? And one of them is this reckless self-destructive behavior, and that counts as part of your symptomatology. Now, if you were a child under six, who wouldn't get that? Whether you've been traumatized or not, who wouldn't? As someone whose frontal lobe hasn't developed and can, sort of in, inhibited their more emotional system. So there are variant criteria that makes sense given their developmental age. Now, of the hundreds of disorders that can be diagnosed, at least they're grouped, so it doesn't look so chaotic. We have a number of diagnoses that fall within each chapter or category. And we will, in this course, talk about most of these. So the neurodevelopmental disorders, what do those entail? Those are attention deficits, as, uh, the autism spectrum disorders, intellectual disability, so onset you typically in early childhood. We'll talk about uh, schizophrenia next week and disorders that involve psychotic symptoms. What's, what's an example of a psychotic symptom? Hallucination. I'm hearing things, there's no auditory stimulus. I'm seeing things, there's no visual stimulus. Or a delusion. I believe it without a doubt, no matter what, you can't convince me otherwise, 
and there's absolutely no evidence to support your 100% certainty belief. So delusions and hallucinations characterize our schizophrenia spectrum disorders. Today we'll start on the depressive bipolar disorders. Anxiety disorders, you're going to learn about phobias, social phobias, panic disorder, generalized anxiety disorder, everything that shares in common this excessive fear response. OCD, most of you have heard about obsessive compulsive problems. This chapter covers obsessive compulsive hoarding, obsessive compulsive pulling out your hair, obsessive compulsive excoriating, picking to the point where you bleed. So we'll talk about those. Trauma, stressor-related, we'll get through post-traumatic stress. Dissociative disorders. Probably the one you would be familiar with would be what used to be called multiple personality disorder, called dissociative identity disorder, where you have memory loss, you have dissociated, you have removed from your conscious awareness something about yourself. This is usually you're, you don't remember what you've done. But in the meanwhile, while you're amnestic, what's going on? You're still interfacing with the world. Are you interfacing as you? You're interfacing with some other personality characteristics. Okay, so that's an example of one of the dissociative disorders. Somatic symptom disorders. Presentation's gonna be physical. There'll be aches and pains and fears about illness and cancers. And yet really at the root of this is more of a psychological distress than it is actual physical problems. So very important to know about, given that they're going to come see general physicians and specialists before they ever see psych. Talk and focus on the eating disorders, specifically bulimia and anorexia, how they are very common but, and often have similar symptoms, but there's a key difference between them. What is, in one word, the major difference between anorexia and bulimia? Both can purge. Both can binge. BMI. It's, the anorexic is the one that, regardless of whatever their pathological eating and purging behaviors are, are the ones that are low BMI. Okay. Elimination disorders, we don't really focus on inuresis and incopresis, but basically in childhood, when children should have established bowel control, bladder control. Sleep-wake disorders, insomnia, hypersomnia, narcolepsy, apnea, nightmares, sleep terrors. There's a whole bunch of sleep behavior, sleep problems that are classified as a psychiatric problem. They have a whole chapter devoted to them. Sexual dysfunctions, problems with the sexual response cycle. Someone who doesn't have libido, someone who doesn't get physiologically aroused, even if they have the idea, yeah, I'm interested, but they don't have an erection, for example, or they don't orgasm. Gender dysphoria. This is where you have this incongruence between say, bio biological sex and your psychological sense of whether you're female or male. And there's an incongruence between those two. The disruptive impulse con conduct disorder, we mentioned one, that intermittent explosive rage, tantrum disorders would fall in this category, oppositional, defiant type of behaviors fall in this category. Towards the end of the course, we're going to have a number of lectures on drug addiction. Very important to know about. And you'll become, hopefully, very knowledgeable in identifying if a patient came to the emergency room and they had particular physical 
um, symptoms as well as emotional reactions. Are they high on meth or are they withdrawing from heroin? And you will be really fluent in identifying the classic profile of someone who's intoxicated on a major class of drug or withdrawing from a major class of drug. Neurocognitive disorders, that's more end of life, oftentimes end of life problems with dementias. So we'll talk about Alzheimer's and how that might contrast with a vascular dementia, a Lewy body dementia, a frontotemporal dementia. How can you tell those apart? Personality disorders. DSM has identified some cluster of behaviors and thoughts and traits that are basically saying are unacceptable. That this, this cluster of characteristics and the way you habitually respond to the world is deviant. So we're saying you are flawed characterologically. So DSM actually pinpoints 10 different personalities that they think are deviant. Paraphilic disorders, Does, do you have sexual responsiveness? Yes. What's the problem? The stimulus for what causes you to be sexually excited. So these are our sexual deviancies, so paraphilias. So something that shouldn't be making you sexually aroused is making you sexually aroused, and so forth. So those are the major, major categories that we're going to cover. And the point of going through this was to give you an appreciation of how wide the gamut is of mental illness, something from sleep to sex problems to hearing voices. Very broad array of pathologies that define mental illness. What I want to mention is the, the other conditions, this last chapter in DSM. And notice it's called other conditions. It doesn't say other disorders. It says other conditions that may be a focus of clinical attention. What that's saying is they're not disorders, but they are still reactions or still behaviors, thoughts, impulses, whatever, that might improve if you go talk to someone, if you get some advice, if you get some counseling. And I've given you some examples. There's a whole host of this. This could be something from acculturation difficulties, moving to a new country and having problems fitting in, um, the family dynamic struggles that you have because of a divorce. These are major mental illnesses, but they still might benefit from some help. Now, in the ICD-9 version, all the codes actually were um, V codes. All the codes started with the letter V, so you knew that if you wrote down V code, V something, ah, it's one of those other conditions, not a mental illness, other conditions. Well, now with the ICD-10, they change it to a Z or Z code. So the idea is they want to distinguish mental illness from not mental illness, just condition. And they do that by coding them a little bit differently. DSM, in the appendix, is contemplating a number of, in this case, eight disorders where they think, hmm, should these go live? Should these be prime time diagnosable? And one of them, as an example, which might make DSM-6, will be internet gaming disorder. Now, these, these symptoms are proposed. They might change, but at least it's a working definition that everyone that wants to research it has so they can research it and at least have a homogenous definition. If you can read that, basically it's things like <laughs> you're spending way too much time of your life playing the games, if you stop, you basically have withdrawal symptoms. You develop tolerance where you, you can't just play two hours, now you have to play five hours, that you can't stop. Even if it's causing distress and impairment with your relationships, you can't. What does it sound like? 
drug addiction. These are almost identical to the definition of being hooked on drugs. And I just read a case where some kid, he was in university and he was spending so much time, so much time that he was failing out of school and wasn't even going to school, but he wanted his parents to kill, send money. So he fabricated transcripts, gave them to his parents, oh, look, I'm doing well, so he could keep getting finances. And I mean, that's a problem if you are lying about your, how much time you're spending and you're failing out of school because of it. So in any event, that is a possibility for, in the future, being diagnosed. But right now, not. And just to give you an idea of some other ones that we will see if they survive the, the appendix, uh, one thing caffeine use disorder, this one irritates me a bit because you can be intoxicated on caffeine officially. You can be officially withdrawing, having a withdrawal syndrome from caffeine. But DSM-5 does not recognize that you can be an addict of caffeine, that you can compulsively center your life around, I need caffeine, and it can wreck relationships because you become irritable. And Yes, there is addiction, I believe, strongly. And they're contemplating whether there is a caffeine addiction. I think in DSM-6, they will recognize it. I think the ICD-10 does, but DSM does not. But at least they're studying it, recognizing, can you really wreck your life over caffeine? Well, I'm almost proof positive of it. So, right. Basic features of DSM. You already know that it's the main point is the checklist for diagnosis. There's an accompanying text that describes in narrative form some generalities, like schizophrenia, more, most likely to strike men at 18, and women around 25, and da, 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 da. narrative, descriptive. Nothing is mentioned about biology. Nothing is mentioned about treatment, what causes it. It's just purely descriptive. So it's not a, it's not a textbook to read by any means. It's really just a resource to double-check your diagnosis. Now, speaking of etiology, we certainly have treatments. We don't even know why many of our treatments are, work, are, are useful, why they're effective. We just use them and, well, they, they work, so we're not exactly sure why. And we'll hear, you'll hear that throughout the course. As far as what causes it, you will be likely very unsatisfied by the end of the course because you're not going to have a great appreciation of how someone can be schizophrenic, how someone can be bipolar. We might have ideas of which neurotransmitters too high, too low, which general circuits, what areas are probably involved, but you're not going to have a great comprehensive understanding of, of mental illness. It's, it's, we're not there yet. Provisional. This is a qualifier that you can use for a diagnosis if you are basically certain that they do have that specific disorder, but, and the but is in two forms, you don't have enough information to make sure because whether you didn't have time to get the information or the information wasn't there in front of you, but you are virtually certain that if you go and ask and find the information, it'll be an endorsement, yes, they have it. But until that time, you're not 100% sure, but virtually sure, so you could say you di you're diagnosing them provisionally. Provision upon the fact I'm just going to go confirm something. The other but would be you're virtually certain, except that this disorder requires that the symptoms persist for a certain amount of time. But you haven't quite met the time 
element, but you're almost there. It's so close that I can't believe that it's just going to improve and be better tomorrow. So those are the two situations in which you wouldn't diagnose the, the specific disorder fully. You would add that little nomenclature, that provisional. All right, so here is an example. You tell me what you think. Here's someone who you think looks bulimic. Bulimia does require that not only that you binge, but that you inappropriately compensate so many times on average per week for so many months. It does have that frequency duration specification. Based on the raggedy teeth and the callous knuckles and, and some lab results, you're suspicious that they're doing this a lot in order to have these symptoms, these physical symptoms. But you haven't confirmed this. So what do you do? Well, first of all, I hope you would recognize that you wouldn't put the actual diagnosis because they don't meet criteria. You can't diagnose it. They don't meet it yet. But you're almost certain, but until you can confirm, it is provisional. And what you need to remember that to do provisional, you are saying that you're virtually certain they have that disorder. So provisional should go with the specific diagnosis. You're provisionally diagnosing this specific. You're saying you're virtually certain they have this. So provisional goes with the specific diagnosis, not the category. You don't provisionally diagnose a category. You would provisionally diagnose a specific uh, disorder. So in this case, bulimia provisional. Good. And what about this one? So here I am trying to prime you for the next lecture because you will have to explicitly know the criteria for what it means to be depressed. And you do need to have five of nine of specific symptoms for a certain duration. Now this person has the requisite number of symptoms. Time criterion has not been met. Can we do this provisionally? Can we diagnose depression provisionally? Are you close enough? Because the question is, virtually certain that they're going to meet criteria. Now, if this was only two days in, would you do it? Would you diagnose provisional? 
but you are close. And what helps, I hope, with this scenario is that there's no in indication that anything's getting better and it's severe. So I think you would be okay in saying that this is actually provisional MDD. And remember that, once again, if it's provisional, you would never put the category. You would put the actual diagnosis. Okay? You can't provisionally diagnose a category. Good. Now, another specifier that's almost exactly opposite to provisional. Unspecified says, I know for a fact they do not meet criteria for a specific disorder. Nonetheless, they still have symptoms that look problematic. I don't want to just say, no problem, leave my office. I want to still capture the fact you've got problems in a specific general domain, category, or chapter, in other words. So in this case, if you thought, well, you don't have bulimia, you don't, you just don't do it enough. You don't purge enough, you don't binge enough, but are we gonna say, therefore, you're normal, even though you only vomit and binge once in a while? You would have the option of saying, you still got a problem in the category of eating disorders. So in that case, you would do unspecified, and unspecified always goes with category, not a specific diagnosis. Okay, so see if that makes any sense. For questions like this, I would want to ask myself certainty that they have it or certainty they don't have it. And this is certainty they don't. They don't have enough symptoms. You can't assume they're going to develop more symptoms. All you know is they don't meet it. If they don't meet it, what do you immediately rule out? Provisional. You can rule out provisional and you can actually rule out the actual diagnosis. So you could rule out A because we said they don't meet it. We can rule out anything that says provisional, because provisional is a certainty, a virtual certainty. We're saying they don't. So now what we're left with is someone that has a problem in the domain of depressive disorders, but nothing specific. So remember, unspecified captures that they don't meet a specific criterion, but they have a problem in the category. So the category is depressive disorders. Very good. Another aspect of diagnosing, and this is where this prior history can be a problem because it's bringing forth anything you've ever been diagnosed with. Now, you have prior history and you have in remission. Both of these descriptors say what? They say, you don't have the symptoms now, but you did. What's the difference in flavor between those two terms? One is saying, prior history makes it sound like over and done, never coming back versus in remission is suggesting that it's just under control, it could come back, it might likely come back, but it's just under the surface. So it is implying one's more likely 
over and done with not to recur, and the other one, you're wondering if it's going to recur. Now, there's judgment calls when you want to use either one. And I'm just going to, given this scenario, what, do you, what would you do? Curious what, oh, interesting. Now let's talk about the rationale. I didn't expect you to know it, but I'm just curious, just clinical judgment-wise, why this might be relevant. And after the addiction lectures, at the end of the semester, you will know that people who have addiction, even if it's been 15, 20, 30, 40 years ago, is always, always, always considered in recovery. So they're never over it, it's always a battle, always in remission. So that's just the general practice and, and conceptualization of addiction. But can you, especially in this case, this person is coming for anxiety. And the concern is, would you want to prescribe a benzodiazepine for anxiety in someone who has a history of drug addiction, even if it's been 15 years? And the concern is, once addicted, you could very well get easily addicted again and relapse. So drug addiction in general, you almost always, I can't say always, but almost always it would be in remission no matter how long it's been since you touched a drink of alcohol or any other substance. What about your judgment on this one? Okay, very good. Here, maybe a little bit more clear-cut. This person went through a phase. They haven't had problems with this kind of conduct for many, many, many years. You certainly, there's no reason to think it's going to now reemerge. So in remission, I think, or sorry, prior history is the better way, I think, of capturing it if you were forced to put one or the other. Did any of you think about the possibility of not even mentioning it? And that is always part of your clinical judgment as well, 
is can you just not even mention it? Let it die. Let an old die. Is there, and there, there's a lot of debate about this. It's a stigma. You still, if anyone sees your records, oh, you are as bad as getting, does it, is it serve any purpose to bring it forward? Again, judgment call. I'm not making you make that judgment. It's just between prior history and in remissions, hard enough. But there is sometimes when a, someone who really thought it was a wrong diagnosis or just carrying it forward when there's no chance of it again, it was, it's just not helpful. But again, that's just a, something to think about clinically. One of the major criticisms of our, our diagnostic system in which we say you have to have four of six or five of nine symptoms is that we are drawing a division, this arbitrary distinction between normal, abnormal, when really what separates the two at times? One symptom. It's like I was thinking it's analogous to that 89.4 versus that gives you a B and an 89.5 that rounds to a 90 that gives you an A. And B, oh, you're good. A, you're excellent. And what's the difference between that, half a question on an exam, and yet it sounds like worlds apart. And that's the idea of, of this dichotomous way of diagnosing is that normal, abnormal, versus we all have a little bit of something likely. If we all got assessed for depression, we would have, well, I'm a, on, a, on the scale, I'm 8 of 10 or 9 of 10 or 6 of 10, and we don't say abnormal or normal. We just say my depressive score is this. It's more, if you think more of a, a linear approach. But DSM is this more categorical, normal, abnormal. And the difference between the two might not be that great. We also are concerned about how valid some of our diagnoses are. And by valid, we mean, does this disorder actually really exist or did we just make something up? Does this disorder have a neural substrate? Or did we just take a bunch of symptoms, throw them together and say, hey, here's a disorder? And as an example, let's say that we have hypothesized that there is a disorder called bad wife syndrome. And you must have three of the following seven symptoms for at least a year of marriage to be called bad wife. And one of the symptoms is nagging at least twice a day for X number of weeks, that they are micromanaging, that they are inflexible, that they criticize, that they blah, blah, blah. Okay, now, if you did this checklist on me, <laughs> Duncan would be like, and he would be like, assess me, yes, 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 bad wife syndrome. Now, you can take me over to another, someone else, and they do the same. Brenda, do you criticize? Do you micromanage? Do you, uh, yes, 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 bad, bad wife syndrome. What have we established about bad wife syndrome? Reliable or valid? Reliable. It's replicable. You've defined it well. All of you can say, Brenda, you're bad wife. But is it valid? Is that a real disorder? I say no. Dunk says yes. But in reality, you have to ask, is there these neural substrates that are going to say this abnormality in this system is causing this repertoire of behaviors? Probably not. That's my stance, and I will maintain that stance. But that's the question we have to ask ourselves. There are hundreds of different disorders that we've well described. We've well defined them. But do they really correspond to some sort of neural substrate? And there is a lot of criticism about the disorder saying, mm, we're not sure that this is really valid. And as you can see, over the years, the number of different diagnoses we've defined, are we just discovering them or are we inventing them? Oh, you walked into a room and someone 
said hi to you and you blush. Oh, social anxiety. I mean, are we, are we, are we too readily able, <laughs> too quick to want to say someone is a problem? So that's a criticism. As much as possible as we talk about the disorders, I'll try to give you cases. Some will come from my life experiences. Some will be from the DSM casebook, which takes a lot of the boring checklist diagnoses and then brings them to life in, in cases. And DSM, if you're interested, it has a website. In your notes, I have in box form said, you know, essential diagnostic criteria, and I put them in there. Note that they're not verbatim, they're not precise. You cannot actually formally diagnose anyone you know based on my notes. So just be careful that they're incomplete. What I have done is on Sakai, put in what I call my quick sheets. And this might not be so useful for this course, but come term five and reviewing for step one, you might want to quickly say, what is the difference between um, bipolar one and bipolar two? What is the difference between schizophrenia and delusional? And what I've tried to do is in like two sentences, tell you what the difference is. So it's a nice summary when it all is said and done about the major differences between these disorders. So that is available for you on Sakai. And I will once in a while allude to DSM-IV, how it used to do it, because the language still exists, like it or not. But anything examinable will be just on DSM-V. Okay, and I think to end, let's just do one more. So this is one of the anxiety disorders you'll learn about. The person worries about everything, everything, everything. Got to go on for at least six months. In this case, this has been not quite long enough. Okay, five and a half months, six months is required. This person has worried, worried, worried. No indication that it's going to disappear on you. What do you think is the best way to capture this? It can't be GAD, which isn't even a choice, which is good. Excellent. You recognize that it looks like they're meeting specifications other than time. Time is almost there. No sign that it's remitting. We're comfortable putting provisional and, and assuming that the, the anxiety will continue. Excellent. Take 10 and we'll resume with depressive disorders.